0: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different podcast magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast, end quote. And then there are some podcast reviewers who call us, quote, overrated and, quote, not worth it. No matter what you call us, we are the number one real dialogue podcast for business people who love real different conversations. And we are brought to you by my good friends at NetSuite from Oracle. Visit NetSuite.com slash different today to learn how you can build a legendary foundation for your business. That's NetSuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question every decision and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And I'd encourage you to visit Lockhead.com and subscribe to our newsletter, Category Pirates. If you like this kind of content, You'll love Category Pirates. It's kind of like uh, Harvard Business Review if it was written for and by pirates. On today's episode, a great friend, uh, the world's number one tech analyst, the founder of Constellation Research, Ray Wong. He's back and he is the author of a brand new hot book called Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. And Ray and I dig into all of it. We talk about the book and a lot of other things. Should the government try to break up big tech? Why we need data property laws. What Ray thinks about Elon Musk's new Starlink and uh, whether or not satellites in space are going to uh, redesign the mobile carrier uh, category. He talks about what dominoes should and could do to thrive in the digital age. How to turn airline points into a crypto bonanza. That's a fascinating idea. And Ray tells us about another uh, or a bunch of other trillion dollar category ideas. This is a fascinating conversation with one of the smartest guys in tech. And you may also uh, appreciate Ray's thoughts on immigrant values. All right. As Joey Ramone said, hey, ho, let's go.
1: So what's big in your world? You know, uh, we're launching a book. So of course, book's coming out the door. Uh, We've got that going on. We've got people starting to go to conferences and uh, lots of people talking about hybrid work. So. so are we going back to conferences or what's going on with conferences? You know, I don't know. Uh, people seem to be itching to get out there. You know, I did 14 stops on a 20 stop book tour and everybody is really happy to see each other indoors. We kept it to 25 outdoors. Kept wait a minute. It wait 50. a minute. You did
0: 14 location physical locations on the book tour. Yeah. Starting June 6th, I was on the road for 30 days straight. Just came home on Friday. You're the
1: only guy I know who's done a physical book tour in years. <laughs> it's a pre-order campaign. The idea was to get everyone together. We figured we'd be the first event people got together during the you know post-pandemic. Uh, and it's been fun. You know, we started out with states that were open, like Florida and Georgia and Texas. And then we figured, you know, East Coast would open up at some point. So we did that. So we did New York, New Jersey, D.C. And then we hit up the West Coast, you know, Seattle, uh, so Washington State and parts of California. And then got, got back. So.
0: And so what's it like being out on the road again? I mean, you lived on the road your entire professional life and I know you were going mental when things got shut down. So you were, you were itching to get back out there, I bet.
1: You know, I drove out to airports and kind of camped out there to smell the air like during the pandemic. It's, it's, it was about the same. <laughs> you were no. sleeping next to runways and shit. Sleeping next to the runways, I thought it'd be great to lean back, you know, slide across two rows of seats. Uh, no, I mean, you know, it, it was awesome, right? So, so, what happened was we we started in Boca Raton. That was great. We caught the tail end of the Bitcoin conference. Those guys were crazy. I mean, thirty thousand people just came from the Bitcoin conference. Um, we had a smaller event in Boca Raton, and you know that was great. I mean, it was good to see people. People were excited. I mean, they had you know, Florida's been open since sept- September, so for them, it was kind of not a big deal you know, but then we went out to Orlando, we caught the money show and they caught, you know, they, had, they had almost under a thousand people at the money show in Florida and Orlando. And that was nice. It was nice to see people talking, catching up. We saw Steve Forbes chatted with him for like 30 minutes. That was always How's fun. How's he doing? I haven't seen him for a long time. You know, he's good. He's, he's still running around advocating for the flat tax, talking about money and talking about, you know, fiscal responsibility, uh, which was good. And then we went to Orlando and Orlando was fun. Um, uh, you know, got to the, you know, outside Orlando's like, you know, Kennedy Space Center, went in, we, we avoided the theme parks, but went to Kennedy Space Center and bumped into this guy named John Zarella. Do you remember this guy? He's like, guy every single CNN space shuttle launch, he was like the lead anchor and you'd see him at every one of these, these events. He's got a restaurant in Cocoa Beach and uh, tracked him down, had dinner with him for an hour and a half, it was amazing. And then found the world's largest surf shop, Ron John. Did you know this? I didn't know they were officially the world's largest, but
0: I mean, I certainly know who they are and they're a well, well well-known brand and to the best of my knowledge, I think they've done pretty well selling on the internet.
1: Yeah. So we visited the surf shop and it was kind of neat. Had never been out there. Um, and then we headed out to Atlanta and that was, you know, a bunch of CIOs caught up with them, caught up with some old clients. People were happy, caught up, you know, Capital Grow. I think they're a little bit more conservative than Florida and Atlanta. So they were able to like get, you know, they were like, for some people, it was their first event that they'd been together. So that was nice. Uh, and then we got to Nashville. We got to the Nashville Tech Council. They sponsored an event. It was probably the first event a lot of people had gone to. And then we went to Texas. And these folks have been meeting all the time, so it was not a big deal. So got the Houston, Frisco, Austin, and that was fun. So yeah. <laughs> so you're you're back to your uh, you're back to your old traveling ways. I am. I was trying to get to 20 cities in 60 days. Uh, took the family with the first half. That was fun. And then uh, did it on my own for the last half. What's it like traveling with your family? It's different. Uh, <laughs> the good news is people go to bed late, so it's not too bad on that front. It's just a little cramped sometimes. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's fun, right? They get to see a day in the life of, you know, dad, right? And what, what that's like, and they bump into interesting people. We were in Austin, Texas. Um, my son got a chance to go on a walk with me and Michael Dell for two hours. So that's kind of fun.
0: <laughs> Remind me how old your son is
1: my son's 17 so
0: so what's it like for your son to hang out with you and uh one of the most uh,
1: well-known billionaires in tech history you know, I, I thought it was a treat for him. I mean, he's, he's had a chance to come with me to meet interesting people. Like, you know, like he's met Vince Cerf, Tim Berners-Lee, he's met like, you know, folks that have kind of pioneered the internet. He's met you, I think. <laughs> he has. <laughs> so, <laughs> Although I wouldn't that. put myself in the same category as Tim Berners-Lee. <laughs> it's Half Moon Bay. We do it at Half Moon Bay. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. But yeah, no, they they do it all the time. And he lo- he has a good sense of history. He loves meeting people who are early technology pioneers. And it was kind of fun watching Michael and my son kind of like interact. So, so, That's very cool.
0: Yeah, I w- once remember years ago, a, a psychologist said to me that things have really changed with men and the relationship with their children over the years because n- not that long ago, kids saw dad doing the thing dad does because the whole family was in the business, you know, farming or they were cobblers or whatever, whatever dad was had some mastery at mastery at that was uh, sort of feeding the family.
1: They got to see dad do that. But today they don't get to see us do shit. (laughs) No, we just sit behind a computer. I mean like, Hey, what's going on? Oh, uh, call me later. I'm busy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Everybody's on a, on a device. I've been bringing him on uh, office calls and like office meetings since he was five. I like could bring him in, in the summer to meetings and stuff. And he, he was a good kid. He was, he'd never made a lot of noise, but he's always there kind of absorbing, capturing, seeing what was going on. So, Well, it probably means you have an entrepreneur and a technologist in training. <laughs> we'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> so, hey, these security breaches keep happening and this ransomware keeps happening and happening
1: is there any end to this in or is this just something we now have to get used to? No, if you wanted to limit the security breaches, you'd probably limit and crack down on crypto because that's really how they're getting paid. And you'd also do a better job protecting your like defenses in your perimeter. Uh, We are so vulnerable at this moment. It's honestly like, you know, the Willie Sutton rule. Why do you rob, like, you know, companies, right? Why do you rob banks? You rob because that's where the money is. Why do you put people on ransomware? And that's where the money is. (laughs) So, but, but it is kind of scary, right? That we don't have any defense mechanisms and other countries might, like, I I wonder how hard it would be to hack a company in China and to take them out. Like, could you get past the great firewall? And if you could pass the great firewall, could you get into a company? I bet other companies have done a better job so Now it is interesting the FBI did catch those guys, right? So that was a big uh, breakthrough. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I could track down where some of the money was and some you, know, some, you know, some, of the transactions to get to the crypto were, uh, but but it's different, right? I mean, we, we got to think about like, how do you harden your perimeter? Like, why can someone easily like hack your systems? How come companies don't have disaster recovery, right? That should be done right away. You know, like you should always have a backup disaster recovery ready to go. So like, you know, if you got hacked, you're just like, hey, screw you. We're just going to light up the old copy and we'll be dead. But we'll miss two hours worth of work. Who cares? Let's go. Right. It should be like <laughs> that. So. Now, in this cyber war that's going on, do you think the
0: United States is currently trying to take down you know pipelines in in, in Russia to retaliate
1: or shut down gas lines or things along those lines? I don't know. I, I hope there's someone in charge that's that's doing that. I mean, people should know that every offensive action will be replaced with other offensive action. Uh, you should see. I mean, we should be looking at you know how to take out other you know countries. You know as I mean, it's it's retaliatory. I don't think we'd start an offensive war, but at least on a defensive side, at least we should be able to like take other people's institutions out for saying, hey, but maybe we're quiet about it. We just don't tell people that. I'd love to know what
0: we're doing to retaliate, um, because it seems like it's escalating and escalating and escalating.
1: I think the challenge is you you have to look like you're projecting some level of strength. And I think that's the challenge right now. Uh, you know, if if you presume that the US looks weak, uh, then you'll you'll go for an attack. Uh, if you think that we're not going to respond, uh, then at some point you'll nudge us enough. Hopefully, we actually counter counterattack and then see what happens. But you know, if we don't counterstrike soon, people are just going to think, "Oh yeah, we're sitting ducks." So it's getting close to that point where we, we're going to have to do something. Hmm. Well, uh, we we continue to wait. I personally,
0: I I, I want the uh, current administration to start kicking some digital ass, but that's <laughs> that's
1: just me. <laughs> I really do. I really do. Like regardless of who's president, I mean, we should at least stand up for the country and someone should be out there trying to figure out what's going on. Given that we invented half the tools everybody's using against us. I mean, we should be actually you know, experts at being able to figure out and isolating who the attackers are, where the money trail is and really going hard after them. Yes.
0: Now, um, maybe we p- can pivot to your book a little bit. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about quote unquote, big tech and the evils of big tech and should big tech be broken up and and all of those things. And there's been some pretty high profile people who've come out and said the gov- government needs to get more involved in policing big tech. So why
1: don't we jump off the, the high dive into there? <laughs> Let's start with a non-controversial topic. <laughs> so, no, uh, the you look you know, some people think that digital giants are too big. And that's why they're called digital giants. Uh, I don't know for sure if they're too big yet. And it's not about the size and it's not about the market dominance. I think we have to go a little bit deeper. Uh, and let's just start with, look, I, I'm I'm a free market capitalist. That's just me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm unabashedly a free market capitalist. But you can't have capitalism and free markets if you don't have some rules, right? The regulations have to be there. The rules have to be there and they have to work for the game that's being played. And so I think we do have to revisit the game in terms of thinking about how that game is being played. So so there are a couple of things, right? You know, People are going after big tech because they're too big, but, but you also look at cost benefits and that's important, right? Think about it. You and I can translate stuff right on the fly. We have mapping that works amazingly. Cost of internet and access has dropped uh, over time. Our cost of goods have gone down. And, and I think that's important, right? Those, those are benefits. They're massive public benefits along the way. And that's funded other types of research from autonomous vehicles to AI to quantum to healthcare breakthroughs. And, and you can't forget that. And, and so, so if you believe that there's still a lot more good than evil out there, that's one reason to say, no, it's not ready to break the big tech guys out. Uh, The second piece is the fact that we're in a war with China. I don't care what people say. We are in a war with China. And to compete against what they've built, their big tech organizations have collected massive amounts of data uh, that can be used to create new derivative products, new types of services, new types of insight. And we have to get to that scale to really be able to compete. So, So we have that other factor where we have to think about the overall implications of what happens if we don't have that scale to actually compete head on. So, so I think those two factors are there. But, but now that that's been said, right? First thing is you got to believe in the fact that your personal data, your genomics, your digital exhaust, that should all be property rights. And the reason that's important is because we have existing laws that talk about how you treat property, how you, you know, you know give consent to property. You know, you buy a house. You get a title, right? That's land rights. Uh, You have an idea. You have an invention. You have IP and trademarks, right? That's uh, property right. And the good news is property laws exist, right? They're nuanced in every state and every country and every jurisdiction. Uh, You just have to say, look, your personal data is a property right. And if somebody wants to use it, you need their consent. And suddenly, boom, you actually now have a whole economy around data and you've actually put the ownership of data back in the hands of the people that actually are creating that data. So, so I think that's the first one. There's a second thing that came out in the house well, that though, was interesting. before you go to the
0: second one, Ray, on this first one, if I understand it right, and you would know more about it than I would, this is the rub between Tim Cook and uh, Mark
1: Zuckerberg, is it not? It is completely the rub, right? Uh, Apple believes that your privacy is your privacy. It shouldn't be sold. And they're not in a ad-based model, so they don't care. They're like, hey, we are subscription-based, right? Facebook, on the other hand, is like all ad based and depending on your data. And so they're not subscription based. And so they're dependent on your knowledge and your information and brokering that information. That's the big rub. That's definitely what's going on. Uh, And hence the cookie apocalypse that's coming in with Google and Apple saying, hey, you know, you can't do this. We're going to end cookies. Well, that's because they already have all the information. (laughs) It's like they've got the first party data network. It's like, of course, of course, it's convenient. Let's go end this now, you know, but. But yeah, that's one way to look at Google. Google's in better shape than Facebook and that's why they're doing that.
0: Well, it's so. interesting on the Google versus Facebook thing. I, 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 my sense is, and again, you would know better than me, that the average user thinks the, uh, what my old buddy Jay Larson used to call the give to get with Google for the giving them the data so that we can get the, get the information we're searching for. We give them our personal data in exchange that that give to get is really worth it. That Google is a magical product That whatever negative you want to say about Google and, you know, there's probably negative to be said, but the reality is what they have done to mankind, humankind is, is unbelievable. And if that means we have to give them our data so that we can know how many home runs Hank Aaron hit, um, that's a, a trade we're willing to make. And that a reason why people sort of have the distrust and anger towards Facebook is they don't believe the give to get is anywhere near what it is with Google. But I'm curious to your reaction
1: you're completely right. I mean, and, and, but on top of that, right, whether it's Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Satchel Paige, right. You know, who's did better. Who's who, you know, what, what error that was in. I mean, they can slice the dice, the data better than anyone else. And, and that, that's, that's, that's a gift to humanity. It's a better gift to get. Uh, But here's the thing. Uh, What people don't understand Facebook, let's call them a dominant player, monopoly in social, right? Google dominant player, monopoly in search, they're all competing. Uh, if They're different business models, but they're head to head competing for digital advertising revenue. Google did 130 billion in 2020. Facebook did 70 billion in 100 in, in in 2020, right? And so, so while they're monopolies in their own business models, they're fiercely competitive for digital advertising, and that's what people don't realize. I mean, that that's the big shift that we suddenly saw. And the third player, like five years ago, the nearest player had a billion in revenue in digital ads. I mean, think about it, like. like Google was like 80 times bigger than the nearest player five years ago. But now the nearest player is another dominant player. Monopoly one would say is Amazon. They're in e-commerce. They did $14.1 billion in digital advertising. So you've got three separate business models that are monopolies. Know, this is the,
0: one of the things people don't understand about Amazon is they're what the number three search engine on the planet or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And they sell
0: ads for products mm-hmm. on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So if you Google, you know, uh, if you go, if somebody Googles, uh, your book, I can run an ad that says, Hey, you think Ray's book is awesome? What do you read mine? <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> you can hijack. It's good hijack adding. But 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 yeah, that's the thing, right? And you're you're completely right. But Amazon is the ultimate digital giant. I mean, it's got ads, it's got search, it's got subscriptions, it's got memberships and Prime, right? It's got the goods and the services and their own network that's on the back end. So so that's really what's going on. And and so we see a rise of these things called digital giants that have dominated markets, but they're battling each other out for every digital monetization model there is. Well, now people on the, uh, we
0: need the government to come and rescue us side, uh, say things like, well, Amazon is 40% of e-commerce of the whole category. You know, we can't have a company that's that dominant in, in, in a massive category like that. Then they say Amazon has got 60, 70% share in the cloud uh, hosting business. We can't have one co- And they go on and on and on through the list, Right. And uh, I, I know what my reaction is, but I'm curious what your reaction is when people
1: say that. I, I think that doesn't tell the whole story. And that's why I go back to the cost benefit analysis, right? If Amazon was driving prices up, it was limiting competition. If you didn't have, you know, more choices, you know, if it turned out that they were buying companies to shut them down, right? And, and they were just a pain in the butt to work with and they stopped innovating, then yeah. I mean, then throw out the Clayton Act, throw out the you know, Sherman Antitrust Act, just go after these companies for, for being antitrust. But like, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to make fun of the person that's trying to sue Amazon in D.C., but they're like, Amazon made everybody's prices lower. We have to sue them. I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> that's not going to hold. I mean, you know, why, why would you sue them for that? I mean, it's, I mean, it's great. The prices are lower. Has it, has it caused any negative? You know, harm here to the consumer? No. Did it destroy innovation in the marketplace? No. Right. I mean, but I get it. Right. Well, and even what further, a-
0: the 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 can't the, uh, <laughs> the lawsuit is so fucking stupid because it gets all this PR <laughs> because the the competitor is saying Amazon's prices are cheaper. So let me understand this: your lawsuit is actually an advertising campaign telling people not to buy your shit from you, but to go
1: to Amazon. That's what you just did. <laughs> It's so bad. It's really because whoever's did that is running for higher office and wants to say they took on the big tech giants. It's not like I want to defend the big tech giants. I'm just saying that they've done their job. They haven't caused harm and there's no monopoly yet. But when there is, we do have to go after them. And some of the house bills are really cool. There's there's this one bill called access, which is data portability. Remember the old days, like, you know, you, you got your cell phone, you wanted to switch carriers, and then you were locked in because you had to change your number. And then they created number portability. Well, they want data portability, which is cool, which means you could switch from Facebook to competitor number two. I have no idea what that is. I don't know how they're going to do it. Right. But it's an interesting law. Right. You should have, you know, not only to my first point, you should own your data, and make it property. Right. Second, you should have data portability. But then the third thing is like, let's let's use some common sense. Let's stop getting all political on different sides of the spectrum and, and do a cost benefit analysis and say, hey, look, benefits to society versus the cost to society. Does that suck? I mean, if it sucks, okay, that makes sense. It's like this Apple Epic suit, right? I mean, Epic's a great company. Apple's a great company, but Epic's basically saying, you know, you got this awesome store. We want to use it for cheaper than what you're asking for. We don't want to pay your slotting fees and we don't want to pay any marketing. So, you know, can you let us use your store for free, the store that you built after all this time? Right in the grocery world, they just kick you out. They're like, "Dude, that's my market. I spent all this time building it. Like, why would I give you that? You want to pay? You want to be on the counter? You want to be in the aisle? You're gonna pay me marketing fees, right? Pay me to put your product on the edge. And that's normal, right? Someone and spent they the built, time to go out and build this. They built the you know?
0: greatest digital product store in history in the Apple App Store. I mean, what they did is incredible. Now look, and they're not the dominant OS.
1: They're not the dominant OS. Android is eighty yes. percent of the market share or more. Right? These guys did it with less market share. Because they built an ecosystem, developers love. They get paid
0: well, and users love it too, right? And users. So love it. when you can be the intermediary to put uh, creators and developers with customers who want to buy, it's value. And you build added. the biggest Otherwise, platform.
1: You yeah. If you're not adding value, you go away. You go bankrupt, right? You can't just create a platform and say, "Oh, come to me. This will be great." I mean, people try this all the time and they fail because their platforms suck. The
0: other thing I think people forget is there have been many times in history where people were chanting to have the government break up big tech companies. And uh, it turns out we didn't need to break up HP, right? No, they did that on their own. And so there, there's another element of this, which is technology innovation category, new categories co- coming about, giant new platform shifts, you know, cloud to mobile to things along these lines, AR and VR potentially, and a lot of other things, uh, by the, the the merging of bio and uh, the tech world, all these things, right? Mean that the opportunity for innovation and for new categories. Uh, that could potentially destroy
1: these uh, digital giants is still a real thing, or maybe you don't think so? It's a real thing if you know how to create a digital giant, right? And and that's what the book talks about, how to build one, how to partner to compete against one, and how to actually put the regulatory environment. And they're fine things to do. If you want to take out another digital giant, I don't think it's that hard. I actually know how to do it. Um, (laughs) so, I mean, it's, it's, you see, all right, well, let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you already see it. Right. So, so let's take like food delivery apps, right. That marketplace. Now, now you know, I love Domino's not as a pizza, but as a company, like it's an awesome company, right? They went $3 to 350 from 2009 to 2019, one of the top performing stocks in the marketplace. Right. And, And they, they won the battle for digital Transformation. They, they totally beat everyone. The app is awesome. At 5 p.m. on a Friday, it says, hey, Chris, you ordered last week. Would you like a pizza today? We've got your order. You can just push one button and order the same thing. It'll track the order, tell you it's in the kitchen, 10 minutes away, five minutes away. Pizza's here. And you can take a picture of the pizza, send it to the AI bot, and it'll tell you exactly how the franchisee did. Right? That's awesome. They won the battle. But how often do you order pizza maybe i don't know i mean we're a little older now maybe once a month once two weeks right we might order like twice a week when we're younger but but the point being is you want you don't order as much as you order thai food or you know you want to get a burger or if you want to go out and get italian food or like chinese food you might order more and so the food delivery apps are a great example of how you can topple any company that's in existence they basically took advantage of the situation where you know like a door dash yeah like a Doordash, like an uber eats or you know um and and basically You know they took the customers from the small businesses basically the small businesses said hey we can't do delivery so they gave them their customers they did the delivery then they actually the customers gave them their payment information and they also told them what they liked so pretty soon these food delivery apps have better data than the restaurants themselves and in fact you might order from a restaurant maybe once every two weeks if you're a loyal customer but they're ordering from food delivery apps like how often do you order from a food delivery app two times three times a week Five times? Do you
0: cook? Uh, I mean, I well, well, for sure, at least once. Uh, my wife is Italian and she happens to be an extraordinary cook. So uh, we probably order once, maybe twice. Uh, and then she cooks a lot. But more than pizza, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Although she does, she does barbecue pizza that is really fucking amazing. Um, I'm coming yeah. over. <laughs> yeah. By the way, and when she, does, uh, when she does burgers, she makes her own ketchup. Wow. Yeah. She makes her own pasta. It's craziness around here. It is a miracle. I'm not 4 billion pounds. I mean, it is, I live in a food heaven, Italian food heaven. Oh my God. Well, well, here's uh, the thing. (laughs) Getting back to DoorDash, you do love it. And the great thing is, you know, I live in a part of the world, you live in a part of the world where there are amazing restaurants. We have amazing restaurants. And to be able to have those restaurants at a, at a, at a, at a finger touch on your phone is amazing.
1: Yeah. And so what happened is, look, this customer account controlled disintermediation. The Small restaurants gave them their customers. They then took the data and used that to actually optimize on which restaurants to work with. In fact, some of them even built ghost kitchens. Like in India, a company called Swiggy has ghost kitchens. And you know what a ghost kitchen is, right? Like big warehouse has different fronts of different restaurants all ordered from the same place. So now they know the data of like, hey, we're to optimize their ghost kitchens. Then they built the biggest network. Restaurants might have thousands of customers. These folks have millions of customers. And then they're monetizing on ads and search and placements. And guess what? These folks can lose $100 million a year and nobody cares. The investors don't care because so long they're growing, they're in good shape, right? And so these five hallmarks are basically giving Domino's a pain, a heartache. Yeah, they did well during the pandemic, but in the long run, they're going to be crushed by these food delivery apps, right? So the question is, does Domino's fight back? They're, they're getting niched, right? They're getting backed into a corner. Mm hmm. They're just a niche. But if I was Domino's, not that they would pay attention to me, but if I was in charge of Domino's, I'd say, good, let's go create a new event, joint venture startup called Delivered by Domino's. We're going to partner with Stripe and PayPal, and we're going to actually go out and help small businesses with their logistics and delivery. And we're going to actually let them plug into the network so that they won't have to you know, deal with the terror of food delivery app. Big giants, you know. And, and that would be like a whole new startup that they could create and and invite those folks to come in. And every restaurant, if you join and you know, are part of it, they'd give them like, you know, maybe give them 0.01% of the company, right, on this new venture, but they'd be like the biggest delivery operation and food delivery network overnight. Right. So so there are ways to fight back. And and I think it's just it's gonna take companies to understand who to partner with, how to build those coalitions and really build the same models these digital giants are doing.
0: Now, the other one I wanted to sort of bounce off you about how to take out big digital giants is, you know, we all know when there is a exponential leap forward in the technology or around a category, it can change overnight. And so one of the ones is that is fun to speculate on is this, uh, this network that uh, Elon Musk is building in space to take out all of the mobile companies. And so it's sort of interesting to see him doing this, him doing it publicly and you watch all your Verizon and T-Mobile ads at sports. I see them when, when, I, when I watch sports on TV. They're blowing each other's brains out on we're better than they are. Stupid marketing, complete waste of time. But anyway, meanwhile, they're, so they're fighting over the existing pie. Meanwhile, it looks like Elon's like, hey, I'm going to build this thing and I'm going to flick a switch. And you guys are all going to be out of business. But um, tell me what you think about what's going on and, and how that plays into this digital
1: giants. Everybody wants to be the, uh, everyone wants to rule the world. So I was reading this book called Follow Your Different and it seemed like you had to either choose between a first mover and a category creator, but these guys are doing both right? I mean, think about Starlink. It's freaking awesome. So Elon is the king of using government money to build decentralized snow crash worlds. I mean, that's basically what he's doing. (laughs) It's freaking awesome, right? He takes all the subsidies out of the government, like finds the hole, optimizes it and figures it out. So in this case, he's got the government funding his rockets to put a decentralized internet from space that gives livers 150 megabits at $99 a month, there's no taxes. There's no regulatory. He basically bypassed the entire internet, right? So is he is he a, I don't know, first mover or category creator? He's doing both.
0: He's <laughs> absolutely freaking, both.
1: I mean, it's, it's going to be the awesome. first and we've never seen anything like it. And, and and then the beauty of it is like he's he's p- figured out the whole northern hemisphere now. So anyone can pop in on there. And for 99 bucks, the telcos are out there like, we got to build their 5G antennas and networks. They're going to get their butts kicked, right? I mean, Comcast telco- is fucked, right? Well, no, Comcast is in better shape, but Verizon and AT&T are in deep shit, right? Because they're like, oh, we're getting out of the content business. Like they missed the digital transformation revolution, and then they missed the digital marketing revolution. They missed cloud computing. They missed, they missed a whole bunch of stuff, right? But the point being is you know, they pulled out because they can't spend $9 billion on content like Amazon saying, hey, we're going to buy MGM studios. And so they're like, we're going to double down on the thing we know best, building 5G towers and 6G and in infrastructure. And there's Elon disrupting them again, right? So Starlink is awesome. Starlink is a digital giant. Customer account control disintermediation. He's got better data again than everybody else. He's going to have new monetization models that are subsidized with all the rocket launches that are out there. He's also got the ability to build the biggest network of users on his satellite network and devices with every Tesla and every solar panel would be connected to that network. means he's going to be an information broker. He's got better underwriting and insurance, and he's got better information about where markets are going to move on energy and clean energy transfer. I mean, it's awesome. Right. And, and he can lose lots of money. Nobody cares. Right. He's a digital giant. Starlink is a great example of an upcoming digital giant as much as Airbnb, as much as DoorDash, as much as Roblox, as much as, you know, Robin Hood or, you know, eToro.
0: Well, and with all due respect to an Airbnb, who I completely uh, admire and respect and, and think is incredible, there is a difference between an innovation in um, travel, let's call it that. And I mean, this is a, is a massive technological break breakthrough. I mean, for those of us who uh, are of a certain age, us native analogs of a certain age to, to imagine that you would have a satellite mobile network for these magic Star
1: Trek communicators that we have is uh, <laughs> it really is Star Trek shit. It is amazing. I mean, he's, I mean, to get it at 150 bucks, I mean, 99 bucks a month. Right. And, you know, just, and the router and the dish is like 500 bucks. I mean, it's amazing. It's super cheap. Recently, I read a fascinating article. I think it was in the journal
0: about how some of the airlines, uh, and I think Canadian Air Canada was one of them, if I remember the article right, but how some of the airlines got through the pandemic in part by being able to um, uh, essentially monetize their airline points business. And the article made an argument that said, you know, sort of why the, the points business was actually the superior business model. And in some cases was equal to, or larger than that of the actual airline. And of course it immediately made me think of you. And so, um, you have a fascinating insight here that, um, I think is, is exactly
1: the kind of creative genius that's required in this new digital first era. Oh my God, the airlines have effed this up so badly. That's all I can say. Um, they have just completely missed the boat. And, and that article is correct. So, so about four and a half years ago, I wanted to put together team investors to buy Air Canada's mileage program. It was going for 400 million for 10 million flyers. It's $40 a user. Not bad, right? So from an acquisition cost, but that wasn't what the point was, right? Now keep in mind, airline points are funded one penny per mile. They're redeemed at 1.6 cents a mile. So a 25,000 mile redemption is a $400 ticket. Once you do that conversion, you know when to buy a ticket, when not to. You know, and sometimes you buy the magazines, it's two cents a mile. And sometimes you're dumb enough, you splurge, you buy the jewelry, the electronics, and the sporting equipment, right? At three cents a mile. But, but that's not the point. The point is, Airlines look at their mileage and loyalty programs as like a bane to their in- in existence. It's like the way CFOs look at vacation days, like, "Ah, oh, this liability on the books, it's awful." And then every time there's a crisis, they mortgage the crap out of their airline miles. But here's the thing. What's an airline mile? It's tax-free cross-border value exchange. Chris, imagine if I turned every airline mile point into a cryptocurrency that's funded. Holy crap. It's not the you know, 10 million fires in Canada. I love Canadians. That's not the point. It's the 762 million people in Star Alliance that you have agreements with. You can take out retail, travel, media, entertainment, banking in one full sweep with the world's largest cryptocurrency on day one. And we just talked about the cookie apocalypse. On day two, you're the world's biggest ad network. And here's my social good. You can take anyone with a connection to the internet and make the unbanked banked. Now on your currency program, this is not a Ponzi scheme. It's funded. It's funded a penny a mile, right? And these airlines are like, oh, no, no. What's just mortgage you know, or airline program? What a problem. I mean, they totally missed it, right? So, so, so in the book, there's $3 trillion ideas and there's $1,100 billion unicorns. Like when you read it and anyone reads it and, you know, call me. Drop me a line. If you wanna go invest this puppy, I'll show you how to do it. You know, just give me 1% of the company and this is not an offer for a prospectus. No, I'm just kidding. But the point being is it's all there, right? And, and it's right in front of their eyes. And that's why it's so important to find the biggest network, figure out the way to monetize that biggest network. And that's one of them that's just like a no brainer. So so what made you decide to take
0: these multi-trillion dollar ideas and, uh, and, and put them in a
1: book? So we talked to about, we had 10,000 conversations since 2015 about digital transformation, more or less, So I give or take a thousand, right? We're just looking at it. I'm like, every person we talked to in the beginning were early adopters, they were innovators, they were pioneering, they had their board's approval, their CEO's approval to go make some change. And then when we got to like, you know, after I wrote the first book in 2015, right, by 2019, we're like, no one's really succeeded. What the hell's going on? And I suddenly realized that the game had changed right? It was not about digital transformation. It was about what the digital giants were doing with their business models. And they had learned how to do digital monetization better than everybody else. It wasn't about a digital business model. It was maximizing the monetization model. And, and back to your Amazon point, I mean, they're the poster child of, of doing it the right way. And, and so it made me think about, hey, which companies were going to win and which companies were going to lose? Because not all big tech companies were created equally and that's, that was the starting point. And then the second point was, if I had to compete against one of these digital giants, what would we have to do? And what we realized at some point was that, you know, something like 40% of most companies were actually, most companies were owned by 40% of the same investors. And when we realized that they were hedging their bets against these companies, they were stripping them out. They're like, oh, we need more sh- dividends, right? We need share buybacks, right? And they basically were taking the cash out of these highly profitable companies, And then using it to create startups that beat the crap out of their own markets. They hedged their bets. They're like, oh, these companies aren't going to innovate. So let's take the cash out and bet on someone that can. And and that's when we realized that it wasn't that the game was fixed. It's just that these companies were never given a chance to win. And so we saw this happen in almost every category. And we realized, okay, we need to write a book on how to help companies beat and win against digital giants, So what I love about what you've done
0: is, uh, so you've given us some big ideas, but I actually think, so how do I want to say this? When there's a breakthrough, there's actually at least two breakthroughs. There's the thing that gets broken through, and then there's sort of what it makes people think. You know, my friends, uh, Mike Damphouse and Kevin Maney from um, uh, Category Design Advisors, Kevin Maney, co-author of Play Bigger. They're, lately they've started to talk a lot about the, uh, that they call it the adjacent possible, you know, when starting to think about what category innovation should you be doing in your space? And so they have this idea of the adjacent possible. And so when I hear you talk, when I read your shit, a lot of people are going to criticize you. A lot of people are going to say you're nuts, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. These are all very sort of out there ideas that you're presenting, but So there's the idea there's, and then there's the value of the idea and there's the things that make, make you think about your industry from the idea. But the other breakthrough is the adjacent possible. I think you're, you're at least in my opinion, you're teaching us how to think like, like crazy Ray and you know what, maybe not so
1: crazy, right? Hey, it's not. I mean, honestly, the airline point one can be done. If you're Amex, you're already sitting on the point system, you could actually convert that and turn it on to crypto. You know, if you're a I mean, here's a hypothetical. Let's say I'm in, in Qatar or UAE, and I want to create the world's biggest Mideast currency. I take my airline loyalty program. I create a digital dinar or I create a digital, I forget what Qatar's currency is. I'm going to have to look this up as we talk uh, because I don't know. Um, but, you know, I take the Qatar currency, which is, you know, is a real. Yeah. I take a digital real and I go out and, and I peg that, right, uh, against a point system you know, pretty soon you could actually take out belt and road of China's influence on the East, right? And the dollar hegemony on the West with all the deflation, you know, all the, you know, basically devaluation of the dollar creating like, you know, next to nothing worth oil, right? And pretty much hedge, right? You'd be the Middle East's biggest currency on day one. Right these are real things I mean I I I would say that it's more than art of the possible these are very realistic and it requires big money right you know the so, you know sovereign wealth fund and you know the temesex of the world the ideas you know the Canadian pension fund right Norwegian pension fund they can make these things happen right and you can also do these for public good I mean, let's say you're trying to like reform currency or reform, you know, connections in Africa or South America or even, the, you know, even other countries, you could pretty much launch these things, create new platforms, get rid of the middlemen, get rid of the banks that are not adding any value and just go direct and create these new lending models.
0: <laughs> I love you. Now, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, we've been, we've been writing about this in Category Pirates and it's something I'm surprised doesn't get talked about. So I'm dying to talk to you about it. Which is if you take the two older generations, uh, baby boomers and Gen Xers, you get about—I don't, don't remember the exact number—but 138 million Americans. And then if you take the uh, millennials and the Gen Zs, you get a slightly more, like about 140 million, if my memory is right. It's it's in those ranges. And here's the aha that I don't think most people get: the native digitals. Are not just a new generation of people, and the differences between the native analogs and the native digitals is are not the just the typical. Their music sucks, and their culture sucks, and their ethos sucks, and we have new ideas. It's not all that typical stuff we've seen from generation to generation over over centuries. Our argument is this: that if you're under the age of thirty-five you are amongst the first human beings to come of age integrated with the machines. And that as a result, your digital life is your primary life and your analog life is, uh, is an add-on to your real life, which is your digital life. If you're a native analog, then of course the opposite is true. And so, A, I'm curious what you think about that and B, most especially I want to know what you think the
1: implications of that are. Yeah, no, I think the implications are huge. Uh, And you see the generational shifts happen. Like, for example, unbeknownst to my team, which they'll find out now on the podcast, unbeknownst to the team, like, you know, I I don't want to switch our whole platform to Discord, right? Everybody's on Discord. If you're on the age of like 25, everyone's on Discord. No one's using Skype, Teams, Slack, or, you know, like, you know, zoom, they're on discord, right? They're on discord and Twitch. Right. So, I mean, I, I want to deliver like our, our experience. I want to put our communities on discord because everyone's going to be in discord. Right. But, but it's because the folks under 35 are all using it. Right. It's just like when we were, when we were coming up, people were using Google, like Google classroom or Google, like we took out Yahoo and AOL and all those things. So, so there's a bit of that, but, but I think the digital native piece is hard to replicate. Like if you're immersed in that technology, you definitely think differently. You connect very, differently. You connect dots very differently. Um, but you also have to take in the value of the folks that were analog, right? They have a different focus on relationships and experiences. So I think they're going to coexist for quite some time. The interesting thing, um, is,
0: uh, Google, Facebook, uh, Google, Apple, and Netflix run by, uh, native analogs. All three companies have CEOs that say, hey, you all have to come back to work. And in all three cases, the employees give them the middle finger and say, I don't think so. And in all three cases, the CEOs need to uh, change policy. And the thing that struck me about that, Ray, was like, wow, here are the guys running the biggest digital brands in the world who are surrounded by native digitals,
1: and yet they couldn't see it. definitely know that. Um, I, I, think part of it is, you know, it depends on the department you're in. When we talk about remote work and hybrid work, I mean, let's be honest, like your de- design team, innovation team, engineering team. Um, I talked to enough design heads and they're like, God, what took us three months we can do in like four days. Right. Uh, but if you're in sales or you're doing accounting or you're doing something that doesn't require that kind of collaboration like in person to get something done or create a breakthrough you're probably better off home i think those 2 hours of a commute coming back to your life is awesome maybe you'll be behind on audiobooks and npr but you know that's okay <laughs> so
0: Maybe they won't be uh, consuming as much d- d- disrupt TV. <laughs>
1: Although I can't imagine that. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that on a weekend. That's <laughs> good. So, but yeah, no. But, but we see that we see that on the remote side, and and I think though the digital natives, if you look at it that way by generation, um, it's it's interesting. Uh, I would say that you know their their ability to actually you know think how data is used. Think how the implication of a technology can create brand new ideas. It's very different. So, but you know, when it comes to mechanical or physical things, like people tinker with stuff, um, you, you can see the difference between who, someone who's like a digital native and someone who actually understands that the analog world. We're at a friend's house and I, I think like, you know, like, I don't know, like a chair fell apart, you know, I mean, there's no one in the room under the age of 20 that would know how to put this thing back together. Right. It was, it was very different. Right. Everybody else was like, oh yeah, here's what I need to do. Right. <laughs> and you can see that. But you know, if your computer fell apart, I don't think anybody, <laughs> around what they were doing, the kids were like, figure out, Hey, here's what you need to do. You know, other than like turn that thing off and, you know, repow- reboot.
0: <laughs> you know, the other thing that occurred to me is uh, when you and I were younger, if we wanted to meet uh, somebody we were interested in ha- having a romantic relationship with, we had to develop some games. You had to have the ability to go up to, you know, in my case, a gal and 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 say something and not slobber on yourself and, and you know, be able to have a conversation and not pee yourself and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. You had to get some game and man, you got swatted a lot. And sometimes you got swatted in public where people saw you at the school dance or, you know, at the at the club or whatever the fuck it was. Right. Well, today, if you don't have digital game there's no game
1: <laughs> we need I mean a book. it's all
0: digital games we need a book dealing with digital rejection <laughs> yeah I think <laughs> well it must be hard because if your primary life is your digital life yeah, I don't know how you and you get one. rejected you get rejected by somebody digitally it's upsetting you know it's it's interesting I see this delta between analog and, and native all the time like people take a shot on me on the internet I could give a fuck <laughs> right, But there's a lot of people under 30 where if somebody takes a shot at them or says
1: something about them on the internet, like it's it's upsetting to them for days. Oh, yeah. They break down. Well, part of it is because everyone's been taught that, you know, it's a nice, polite, happy world and you can't criticize other people and, you know, everything has to be happy. The real world doesn't like that. Like, you suck. You suck. I'm going to call you out. You suck. Right. But but the challenge is like, you know, I mean, I got to be able to back it up. If I can't back it up, like you can come back and take another shot at me. Right. And that's fair but we don't have that. The norms have changed, right? If you look at the generational yes. norms, that, that's, like, that's not acceptable, especially out here in California. I mean, maybe on the East Coast, you can still do that. People are pretty direct, right? They're like, they tell you you suck and then you go get a beer afterwards. That's okay. <laughs> here, everybody get, get, here everybody gets a cookie and nobody keeps score.
0: <laughs> now, now, I got to ask you, what is something that you see that you think is really important to get we're either not paying attention to or in general, we don't
1: get. I actually think it's it's impacting our society. It, it's really the, the notion of, uh, and it's not digital, okay? It's about immigrant values. It may be the next book I write. I, I want to interview like... You know, folks that have just come over and then three generations out, how their grandkids are like, and and really look at the gap between immigrant values. It's not an an American thing. I mean, it's a UK thing. It's a Canadian thing. It's, you know, it could be like a Singaporean thing or like a, you know, know, UAE kind of thing. It's places where you have lots of immigrants and they were out there to go pioneer and build stuff. And those immigrant values aren't a certain race. It's not a certain religion, right? I want to go out and interview like, you know, the Nigerian guy that's kicked ass, right? I want to interview, you know, like the first LBGQT woman who did X, right? I want to go interview like the first, you know, wave of like, you know, German Americans that came to the U.S., right? It's because there's something about them and, and that culture, that's what spurs the innovation and that innovation spirit. And I want to know like, you know, how those get passed on. And like, if you didn't come from, you know, an immigrant family in like first three generations, like how did you pick up those values, right? And I think that's what we're missing right now. It's, it's those stories of like why people succeed, how you can succeed succeed what are the values that help you succeed how do you build those life things because we're so busy tearing people apart and taking them down we're not spending time teaching people how to be successful and I, and I think that's what we're missing right now so take the digital stuff out and the digital giants I mean part of writing the book was to help people be successful and, and go out and win uh, and, and and give them some you know give them opportunities to go to to really like build something and, and I think we're not doing that as much. I mean, we're in such a weird polarized world where everybody just wants to take everybody out.
0: What do you make of this? That was great, Ray. Thank you. And unexpected. Very cool. What do you make of this weird situation we have in this extraordinary recovery um, where unemployment is at 6% and yet uh, I talk to company, I'm sure you talk to them all the time, particularly small businesses, can't hire. Where is everybody? And what does that mean from an immigration standpoint? Like I've been thinking, well, shit, if, if we got all these jobs that Americans don't want to do, uh, there seem to be a lot of people at the southern border who really want to come here.
1: You know, the beatings will continue when morale improves. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, think the jo- I think the jobs will be filled when the stimulus checks end. So do you think it's just as, just as simple as the fact that unemployment has been extended? Look at the 26 states that got rid of that people can now hire and find people, right? Now, there is a little bit of people left the restaurant and the service business for other jobs. I mean, I'd say 30% of the, the, the open hires are because people left the industry, right? But it's not like 80%. And there's so many people doing side hustles. I talked to three friends that are in three different casinos in Las Vegas. Q1 and Q2 were their best years ever for gaming. <laughs> Why? People were spending their stimulus checks. I mean, it's like, what the heck, right? I mean, everybody has a side hustle. They're like, oh, well, if they're gonna pay me $83,000, a year to stay at home. I'm also going to do this other side hustle. They'll never know. Right? So there's a whole side hustle economy going on too on the back end. So, so A, they're taking the government's money and B, they're doing their side hustle.
0: Yeah. And so why would you and work? And not, not declaring it. Why would you work? Mm. Like, why would you work legally? You're getting a free check. The thing I don't understand about that is why don't people think, hey, wait a minute. This might be an opportunity for a shift in my life and potentially my family's life if if I can take this government stimulus that I've gotten and get myself a job and or start a company and start to build, you know, I, I read an article recently about, about how this had happened with some of the loan forgiveness stuff. And it allowed, uh, it, was a, it was a story of, of a, a woman, I think it was in Florida. Uh, and I can't remember where I read it. It might have been the Atlantic or anyway, the story was a simple one. Because of what happened during the pandemic, she was able to get her debt behind her get a new job, get herself going. And she's in the best shape she's ever been. And she's upwardly mobile in a way that she says she never would have been. This was somebody living at the very low end uh, of kind of the, uh, the poverty or not, you know, the living wage way, uh, uh, the spectrum, so to speak. And so you hear those stories and you go, that's great. That's awesome." Why don't more people think that? Why are these people thinking, oh, I'll just, I'll just wait until this runs out and then maybe I'll look for a job. Why don't they use it as an opportunity?
1: Because we're human. Yeah. Most humans like, you know, take the path of least like, resistance. Those with these immigrant values are the ones that kick ass, right? They go out and say, Hey, here's an opportunity in lifetime. You just, we well, just wipe my debt clean. I'm going to go out to, to spend some time, get on some courses, get digitally enabled, build digital skill sets, start my own business, right? There's a huge market here. I've always wanted to go do it. I've got a little cushion now. Uh, it's, it's there for those who are hungry or entrepreneurial, right. And and it's up to government to make that possible, to give people that opportunity. Like, you know, stimulus checks should have been means tested a little. I got friends who are like, you know, working at, you know, big tech companies that just started, like they're getting checks. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah. You don't need a check. Yes. Right? And no, no one's going to return a check if they don't need it. I mean, that's not going to happen. So, so, so we have the situation, right? And it's always hard in a government program to tune it properly. There's always some abuse, but this one was just crazy. And so you saw the 26 states that stopped issuing stimulus checks, you know, their job numbers are back, but you gotta remember at 2019, we were still in a job shortage. We were still in a job shortage. People couldn't find enough people for all different types of industries. And we had very, very restrictive immigration. So so if we open up legal immigration based on skills, based on what we're looking for, what we're trying to hire, like that'll also help alleviate some of that, right? You you want productive folks that come over the border, right? You want not that they're not, like you just want to say, Hey, look, we, we're missing like, you know, five hundred people that have plumbing skills, right? Make them master plumbers. We're missing like five hundred people with tech skills, we're missing five hundred people, you know, for daycare, we're missing five hundred people for landscaping. We're spending 500 people for like skilled construction. It, it, we just got to do that kind of stuff.
0: Well, and, and I've never understood why we don't look at the super forward leaning jobs that we want to have around for innovation and entrepreneurship. And, uh, and so, okay, if you're a graduate of, I don't know, I'll make this up. The Indian Institute of technology with a d- d- specialization in artificial intelligence. And you're in the top 1% of your class. When you graduate, you get a present called a green card.
1: we used to do that. It was awesome. I mean, it was the best. I mean, we used to do that. That's how my parents got here. I mean, yeah. Oh really? They they came here with 50 bucks, half a suitcase and a, a, you know, scholarship for chemical engineering, right. At a state school at land grant university who needed students. Right. And they wanted smart folks. Uh, You know, my mom came for English. So your parents got in because they were smart. They got in because they're educated. Just described. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's other things. Where the fuck would we be without you? <laughs> so glad <laughs> they off, came i was better off i don't know i mean but we did that right i mean they did that to build the railroads they did that for you know different like expansion parts in the us i mean those things all occurred i mean we just we're just not thinking like that anymore so
0: it has amazed me that a, a higher percentage of the entrepreneurs that i've worked with in my 30 um, 30 so years um i would guess gut would say about 60% of them not uh, uh, na- not native born american born
1: yeah. Not Native American born. No, no, it's the hunger, right? There's a book here. It's, it's going to be immigrant values, right? I, I think about it. Look, I came to the Bay Area almost 25 years ago this day. It's my 25th year in the Valley, right? I've seen every boom and bust for 25 years here and I've missed every wave. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've seen every boom and bust. I I think I missed almost every wave actually. Um, but the point being is that you know, you nobody has like missed you know. more waves than me. <laughs> <laughs> In the last 25 years, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know uh, what's interesting is that you see the entrepreneurs, they come from different ways of immigration, right? You know, the big boom of like Indian entrepreneurs, the big boom of like Israeli entrepreneurs, the big boom of like you know, um, you know, Chinese entrepreneurs, the big boom of Vietnamese entrepreneurs, right? I mean, it they, they just happens, right? You see it all across the world. The big, you know, I mean, it, it's impressive to, to watch the number of folks, there's a big boom of like Swedish entrepreneurs out here in the Valley, right. Or French entrepreneurs who came out. So, so they left their country to go build something big. And it's, it's pretty impressive. The number of people that have succeeded.
0: Yes. God bless America. Cause that's what it's been for you. And for me Oh yeah. Uh, now, Ray, I could, I could talk to you for hours clearly. Um, but I know that you have a, um, you know, a universe to go help. You're the most in demand tech analyst on planet earth right now. Um, so I, I, I know I got to let you go, <laughs> but
1: hold on. We have one more thing we have to talk about. We have oh, yeah, to talk about that? like the city of Hillsboro versus <laughs> the Flintstone house. <laughs> <laughs> it was our first For, podcast. We started with that.
0: With the Flintstone house. Yeah. Yes. We, we should, um, you know, we should update that and do a modern version of it. Maybe we'll drop that as a special
1: episode. Let's do it. That's me. awesome. I want to interview the lady. She owns, she took over the Chronicle, turned it around, then put all those little, like completed the Flintstone house, made it work, right? And the city sued her for like putting the dinosaurs outside of her backyard and she won. her? Oh, they God, sued her. She won. She won and the city had to pay her for legal fees. I think that's what the $125,000 settlement was. So it was awesome, man. <laughs> that's great. Like, You know, it's funny. The little the, guy the, won. The, the older I get,
0: the more I appreciate anybody who's trying to do something creative and innovative. It might not be my thing. It might not be my style, but you know what, what, if they're doing something new, they're doing something different, they're experimenting, they're trying, God bless them. Go, go
1: for it. Yeah, no, we, we gotta, we gotta make sure to remember there's the creativity and the innovation side. If everybody does the same thing, wait, was it conformity is the source of all evil. So,
0: (laughs) yeah. So one of my favorite quotes is from Kurt Cobain who said, They laugh at me because I'm different and I laugh at them because they're all the same.
1: (laughs) He's looking down on us now, man. (laughs) Oh, that would be great. Anything else you want to touch on, Ray? No, man. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Congratulations on a legendary new book. And uh, I'll look forward to chatting with you soon. All right. Thank you. Well, there he is. My friend, the legendary Ray Wong, The new book is out. It's called Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. And let me tell you about a couple things we have coming up next on Follow Your Different. Gary Kasparov, who is the greatest chess champion of all time, and my buddy, entrepreneur and CEO Steve Pratt of Noodle.ai. Uh, it is a fascinating conversation. You see, Gary is now working with Steve and his company, and uh, we dig into Gary's thoughts about technology And chess and being a champion and a whole lot more. And then soon thereafter, we have the legendary Sabrina Horn. She is the grand dame or certainly one of the grand dames in PR, communications and marketing in both Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley. Her new book is called Make It, Don't Fake It. And we have a legendary conversation and we got a bunch of other super exciting episodes um, coming up for you. Uh, Professor Avi Loeb, who is the head astronomer at Harvard, coming back to talk to us about aliens and uh, some of the things the U.S. government has just announced about uh, extraterrestrials and UFOs and so forth. And so um, we have a fantastic summer of episodes coming. All right, my friends at Splunk are the global leaders in data to everything, D to E. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. And that's why organizations around the globe also rely on Splunk to modernize and strengthen their cyber defenses. You see, Splunk allows you to monitor, detect, and respond and resolve digital security threats by operating straight at the data level. Visit splunk.com slash D2E today to learn how to turn data into doing That's Splunk.com slash D2E. Now, today, companies need every advantage to succeed. And one of the reasons that I'm so proud that NetSuite by Oracle is our founding sponsor is because NetSuite is the number one cloud business system for entrepreneurial growth-oriented businesses, a complete business system in the cloud from finance, inventory, multi-channel commerce, HR, and more. It's time to upgrade from QuickBooks. It's time to ditch the spreadsheet mania and uh, build a real foundation for your business. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need. Visit netsuite.com slash different today and schedule your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. All right. We would like to thank the most legendary Ray Wong. Check it out. His new book is out now. Everybody wants to rule the world. I highly recommend it. It's a mind expander. (laughs) My friends at One Life Fully Live.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. My friends at Squadcast are the leading cloud um, studio in the sky, so to speak, in the cloud for professionals, for remote podcasting professionals. Visit squadcast.fm, it's the platform we use here. My friends at Interview Valet are the leaders in. Um, podcast interview marketing they help you get on podcasts and turn guesting on podcasts into a growth driver for your business check out interviewvalet.com my friends at otranet have been building legendary b2b uh, websites in silicon valley for over 20 years check out N E T today and don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to category pirates it's kind of like harvard business review if harvard business review is written for and by Pirates. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is only for people who value real different conversations, and is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you're into marketing, don't forget to check out Lockhead on Marketing. It's a short form podcast where we take one idea and blow it up, uh, and you might find it fun and interesting. All rights do remain perturbed. We are never tested on Gmos or Cmos for that matter. I, I need to remor- I need to. You know, if you're gonna have a podcast. You should really learn how to talk into a microphone. <laughs> I need to warn you that the creators of this podcast may have been consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the goat, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution. They build the aforementioned lockhead.com. Thank you, GM Simon, for our show notes. Don't forget to listen to The Tragically Hip, support your local businesses. Want to say a big thank you to our healthcare heroes and a big God bless you to the uh, firefighters of california uh thank you candy dandy i love you mom and dad and hey colin this odd cast really ties the room together today our deepest apologies go out to uh, greg clark former ceo of semantic sorry greg we just ran out of time for you that's it my friends please stay safe stay legendary and until we're together again follow your different